All right, I'm turning this morning to Romans, Romans, Ephesians chapter number four. Ephesians chapter number four. And we'll be looking this morning at verses 29 through 32. Ephesians chapter four, verses 29 through 32. And this morning, our subject will be grieve not the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 32. Before we read, I want to ask us the question this morning, why is our speech important? Why is our speech important? How do our words portray who we are? Uh, Those are really the thoughts that the Apostle Paul, as he penned these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has in mind when he makes reference to corrupt communication. However, as we read this together, and we'll read down through the end of this chapter, we'll see that there is this connection between our communications and the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Verse 29 of Ephesians 4, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. In this last part of chapter 4, Paul instructs us, on the importance of speaking in a way that brings honor and glory to God. It may seem strange, but speech is one of those characteristics that sets man apart from the rest of God's creation. It's not a surprise that the ability to speak, the ability to uh, even voice our concerns, voice our thoughts, Voice our opinions is one of the most precious gifts that we have, to be able to speak, to be able to communicate. But it's often, sadly, one of the most misused gifts that we have, the ability to speak, uh, the ability to talk, Um, how the mouth can be used to build up or the tongue can be used to tear down. Within the same mouth, we can build someone up one moment and within moments, we can tear another person down all coming from this gift that we have of our speech. Scripture is very clear in how it teaches that we express who we really are by how we speak. Jesus' words in Matthew 12, 34 were these, out of the overflow of the heart or out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's a paraphrase there, but he's saying that what we speak is just an outflow or an overflow of what's actually in the heart. So what does Paul mean by all of this? Why is this corrupt communication so important? Because Paul's point here is that our speech should be completely different from the rest of the world. Uh, How believers speak should be different. He's not talking about articulation. He's not talking about clarity of how we speak. He's talking about in the things in which we speak about or the things that we talk or how we use our ability to speak. You realize we are proclaiming a gospel today, folks, that is contrary to the desire of most of the world. To proclaim the gospel with these mouths that God has given to us is to proclaim not only the most necessary, needful message, but to do it in a way 
that sets us apart from the rest of the world. Paul is going to remind us here that our speech is characterized oftentimes in the world with an obsession with ourself, an obsession with our own worth, but yet often it speaks corrupt things. Christians are called to proclaim a gospel, not to proclaim self. We're called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, not to proclaim what we want or our own self-worth, but rather we are to proclaim the gospel that tells a man his worth is not found in what his hands can do. His worth is found in Jesus Christ alone. So our speech should reflect what we believe. Very practical, intentionally practical. Paul says your speech should reflect what you actually believe. What you talk about should actually reflect your thoughts about who God is. Paul also teaches us about some very practical types of speech and how speech is given in certain emotions, such as bitterness and wrath and anger, clamor. All these things are present because they are reminders to us that we should reflect Jesus Christ. Speaking is often done at appropriate times. Just being able to speak doesn't mean we should always speak. Just because I can say it doesn't mean I should say it. Uh, That's part of wisdom. That's part of discernment. But when I do speak, Paul tells us here that it should minister grace. Every time I open my mouth to speak, I should minister grace to the hearers. Now this morning I got parked on that thought today about ministering grace. And Paul's not really giving a license to when you can't minister grace or when you shouldn't minister grace. He is saying that don't let corrupt communications come out of your mouth basically ever. And instead, you should only speak that which is good to edifying. Edifying speech ministers grace. Minister grace to the hearers. When? At all times. Paul, we ought to think about the opportunity we have to minister grace to the hearers. Again, I often think about how we have talked about grace this morning. We've sang about grace. We've prayed about grace today. But what does it actually mean to minister grace to the hearer? Do we speak grace to people who hear us? Not just other people who understand what grace is. It's an amazing thing. We have sung about grace, talked about grace today, and there are people in this world who have no idea what God's grace is. They don't know what it even means when you talk about grace. So how do we minister grace to the hearers? Now notice that Paul makes a connection between our corrupt communication and grieving the Holy Spirit. Now what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? This is one of those uh, theological debates that often erupts when you get a bunch of theologians and a bunch of Bible scholars together. They begin to try to talk about all these grand things. and you know It's got to be something big that grieves the Spirit. But you realize in the context of what Paul's writing this, remember the previous verses. He talked about uh, not stealing. He talked about laboring with his hands. We talked about not being angry uh, and sinning. Oh, and don't let the sun go down upon our wrath. Put away lying. It's in the context of all of these practical, intense, intensely practical things. He says, and don't grieve the Spirit. He didn't all of a sudden jump into a big theological doctrinal debate. He's saying in the, in the midst of our everyday common conversation, don't grieve the Spirit. It's an amazing thing. We, we call out false 
gospel people, and we should, we fall out, we call out heretics, and we say these people just, listen, they've got to be grieving the Spirit, yet we forget that Paul says corrupt communication grieves the Spirit. Now that corrupt communication is, it covers a lot of different things. Paul's statement about grieving the Spirit and corrupt communication, really in true context and exposition, has to, has to encapsulate, encapsulate everything we've talked about. Not just in chapter 4, but in the entirety of the letter. So it's more than just this grand theological thing that grieves the Spirit. It's important to understand that grieving the Spirit and how we speak, our communications, also is what differentiates us uh, from a dark world. Um, when we talk about our, our thoughts about who God is and we talk about our, where our morality comes from, why we do the things we do, uh, Paul's point really is direct and it's this. Uh, any wrong living and corrupt speech grieves the Holy Spirit. If I'm living wrong or I'm speaking wrong, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit. How I speak does matter. When I speak matters. Do I minister grace to the hearer? Or am I known as a person who edifies or am I known as a person who is continually tearing down? And by the way, we have seen that line marked very clear about the difference between edifying speech and destroying speech. I mean, like we've talked about, Christians devouring one another with their speech. Just devouring each other and not edifying, not ministering grace to one another. So because the Holy Spirit is grieved by wrong living and corrupt speech, Paul gives the reason why. Notice what he says. Grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. That's really the reason. The Holy Spirit is the seal or the promise of our inheritance. The Spirit dwells within us. And because the Spirit dwells within us, it grieves Him greatly when we live contrary and speak contrary to the God who lives within us. We don't often think about the Spirit dwelling with us when we're talking with people. We don't think about that when we're having a conversation with an unconverted man or a woman, realize you are, God is actually present within you. This conversation that you're having with that individual is a spiritual conversation because you have the Spirit dwelling within you. It's not just this profession of faith we make. We actually have the promise and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Why is He grieved? Because we are not living and speaking as a person who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Don't overcomplicate what Paul is saying here. How we live, how we speak matters. Any sin that runs contrary or counter to the character of God grieves the Holy Spirit. So if my speech is contrary to the character of God, it grieves the Spirit. If my conduct is contrary to the character of God, then it grieves the Spirit. Paul's just declaring that when you became Christians, and he's talking again to Jews and Gentiles, and he says, when you became a Christian, remember that when you became a believer, our relationship to God became one of love. We're no longer held responsible for the laws that we have been breaking. But when we sin, we don't grieve because we've broken the law. 
We grieve because we've sinned against his great love for us. And there is a difference in that. Yes, we broke the law. Yes, we should keep the moral law. But ultimately, a sin is against the love of God. How great a love that he had for his children. That he took all the steps in order to secure our eternal souls. To promise us an eternity with him forever. To remove the guilt of our sin. To remove the condemnation from off of us. When we understand the love of God, it's easy to see why Paul considers this a serious matter to grieve the Holy Spirit. What do we do to counter this grieving of the Spirit? I believe what Paul is teaching us here is that we are to live constantly aware of the Lord's presence. Just practically, how often in a day are you reminded of the Lord's presence? Because the Lord is present with you as a believer every moment of every day. You are never away from the Lord's presence. Now, oftentimes I know we pray corporately as a church and we use terminology. Part of our our Christian cliche is, and I'm guilty of this, Lord, we enter into thy presence. Well, we're already in his presence as far as the Spirit of God within us. He's always with us. And if we're aware of his presence at every moment of every day, it is going to help guide what we say and it's going to help guide how we act. Oftentimes, a lot of us as parents have used that that, uh, subtle threat to our children. Now, I'm going to leave you in this room and just remember, God is watching you, right? God God knows what you're doing. So mom's leaving the room now. Dad's leaving the room. Just remember, God is always watching you. If we live in the presence of God, realizing that God is always with us, it ought to govern what we say, and it ought to govern our actions. As people understand who God is, we have to remember that God is constantly with us, and we need to act accordingly. Now, notice as we pull these phrases apart, there's a couple of main ideas here that we're going to kind of expand on. In verse 29... Paul very clearly forbids corrupt communication and rather instructs us to engage in profitable speech. What's the motive behind that? The motive is for the good of others and reverence of the Spirit. So why do I reject corrupt communication and instead engage in edifying profitable speech? For the good of others and for reverence of the Spirit. We really are supposed to speak for the good of other people. We truly are to have another person's good before us. And I don't think that's just speaking to other brothers and sisters in Christ. I think when you speak, and we speak to a person who is an unbeliever, or a person uh, who maybe even is an atheist, we are to minister grace unto that person. I'm not talking about compromising truth. But you should be giving them edifying speech. Now, it's kind of like arguing about religion, right? People often say avoid those topics, right? Avoid politics and avoid religion. Listen, you ought to do it. You ought to even talk about religion 
and the things of God with the desire to edify the hearer, no matter who that hearer is. So that if a person is here today who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, they're never repented of their sins, that what they're hearing around from you and what they're hearing from this platform is they're hearing grace being ministered unto them. Now, we're not, we're not compromising on sin. We're calling sin, sin. We're, we're calling repentance, repentance. But are we doing it for the profit and the good of someone else? Now, what is corrupt communication? A lot of people like to limit this and they say, well, corrupt communication is profanity. It's, it's saying swear words. It's, it's talking about uh, inappropriate things. It incorporates that. But the word, literally, the word corrupt communication actually means putrid. Horrible things. And he's not just talking about things that the world says are swear words. Uh, it, is, it is words that give the wrong idea of the character of God. If I begin to, to talk contrary to the character of God, that's corrupt communication. He says, but that which is good to the use of edifying. Good to the use of edifying implies the idea that it's speech that is adapted to edify. I actually intentionally try to edify someone else. Edification is in its very sense meant to build up. It's meant to encourage. It's meant to bring to a, a place of understanding that it may minister grace unto the hearers. To minister grace and its literal meaning here uh, is means to confer a favor. When God saved you by grace, it was God's favor. So when you minister grace, that's exactly what you're doing. You are conferring or placing on another person a favor. It is something that is meant to give them profit. Don't try to add to the sense here. Don't try to make this something that it's not. Paul's talking about ministering grace unto the hearers is directly related to our communication. So if we are filled with corrupt communication, the sense is very clear, we're not ministering grace. So if I am unconcerned about my corrupt communication, but yet I'm talking about grace, I'm singing about grace, I'm praying about grace, but my communication is corrupt, I'm not ministering grace unto someone else. That it ministers grace unto the hearers. Again, Paul makes a connection there in verse 30, and grieve not the Spirit of God. Again, it has the idea of any corrupt language. Paul includes what could be said even in Colossians 3, verse number 8. We'll do this in its, in its context. We want to turn over there to Colossians 3, verse number 8. Paul, uh, actually we'll go back a little bit. He, he says in verse number 7 of Colossians 3, he says, In the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, Filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. 
where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. He goes on and talks about as putting on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, even if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. All of these things Paul is relating to ways in which the Spirit is grieved. It could be defined as malicious, impure language, language that's meant to injure. And by the way, I don't think we realize how depraved we can be. Sometimes we actually speak with the intent to injure. We're not intentional in trying to edify. We're actually trying to injure. Oftentimes, that's when we're seeking revenge because somebody said something wrong to us, right? Seeking to actually injure. That's grieving to the Spirit. But it goes even further. If the Spirit dwells within us, the body is referred to as the temple. Everything that profanes the temple was an offense to God. So remember, when the, when the Spirit came to dwell within us, the Apostle Paul, even through the book of 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> begins to refer to now the temple is no longer a building that you go to. He says the temple is actually your body. You are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17, Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. He says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the, that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him will God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So to pollute, therefore, that temple, or to even corrupt the souls of other people by even suggesting impure, corrupt thoughts unto them, is to profane the temple of God. And it is an offense. It's an offense to the Holy Spirit. How we communicate does matter, folks. But also notice Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter, or chapter 6, verse 19. He emphatically says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. Reverence. Therefore, for the Spirit who dwells in us is the same Spirit that dwells within other believers. And that should prevent us from giving communications and actions that grieve the Spirit. Now imagine this for a moment. Folks, I, I'm, I'm, I may not be conveying this as clearly as I'd like to convey it, but realize he's talking about man has the ability to grieve the spirit of God. This is almighty God that my actions and my speech, it is such a serious thing that I grieve the spirit of God that dwells within me. You know, we talk about how God is this 
uh, is this mighty and omnipotent, omniscient, unchangeable, immutable, this, this, this glorious God. And yet Paul puts his finger on something. He says, I want you to know that your words and your actions actually matter so much to the extent that by what you say and what you do, you can actually grieve this God. We know we don't have the power to save ourselves. We, don't, we know we don't have the power to keep ourselves. But Paul says, but we do within ourselves have the unfortunate ability to grieve the Holy Spirit. I think we should really dwell on that for a moment. Reverence for the Spirit. Now I know in our Baptist churches, and it's happened in a lot of Baptist churches throughout centuries, Baptists are scared to death of the Holy Spirit. They're scared to death to, to make much because they're afraid of being labeled charismatic. They're afraid of being labeled as something that they're not. But you realize the Holy Spirit is God. He's as much God as God the Father and God the Son. When we talk about Jesus Christ, we talk about grace, we talk about the grace that was sent from the Father, we talk about the grace of Jesus Christ, you cannot take the Holy Spirit and kind of set Him aside and say, listen, I'm so thankful for God the Father, I'm so thankful for, for Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from the Spirit, the Son, and the Father. They're all part of it. If, I was, if this actually said that by your actions you grieve Jesus Christ, People perk up a little bit more. They tend to say, well, I don't want to grieve the Lord. But you grieve the Spirit is just as much grieving God as if Paul had said it's grieving Jesus Himself or grieving the Father. This is not a light matter. Paul, when he talks about grieving the Spirit, now let's understand, this is not the human emotion of grief. This is, not, this is not how you and I envision grief and, 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 and kind of pouty. Um, again, I, I, I don't mean to trample on things like this, but this is where so many of the kids' materials miss this. They treat God as this emotional train wreck to where God walks away pouty because the believer didn't do what, they wanted, what he wanted them to do. This isn't pouting. Grieving the Holy Spirit means to offend His holiness. It means to act contrary to the character of He who dwells within you. Again, I said in, during our Bible study this morning, part of our biggest problem is we don't truly understand who God is. And again, we ought to perk up today and be asking ourselves the question, I don't want to be found guilty of grieving the Spirit just as much as I don't want to fall be so far away from God that I fall under the chastening rod. This is just as serious as what we talked about at 10 o'clock today. Grieving the Spirit is just as important. And yet, oftentimes when we talk about, I need my, I need my faith to be more practical. How, how does this really apply to my day-to-day -day life? You're not going to get a more practical message than what we're talking about right here. Oh, this isn't telling you how to balance your checkbook. I'm not going to waste my time on that. We didn't come to church to learn how to balance your checkbook. We came to point you and remind you of the holiness of God and who God is and that your actions and your words actually matter. Even me suggesting impure thoughts to someone else grieves the Spirit. You know, oftentimes when we think about 
the reason for our conduct. Remember, not only is the Spirit grieved because His holiness is offended, but there's also a sense in which when we grieve the Spirit, His love is wounded. Really, to grieve the Spirit is conduct that expresses ingratitude. It's unthankful for the presence of God in my life. Paul says, whereby ye are sealed in the day of redemption. Folks, have we considered again today what it means to be sealed in the day of redemption? What is Paul talking about here? The indwelling spirit is your clear assurance and clear certification that you are a child of God. When I talk to someone about their profession of faith, I don't ask them what they prayed. Part of the question is, does the Holy Spirit dwell within you? Because I don't care what you prayed, I don't care what you said, if the Spirit doesn't dwell within you, you're none of His. Every believer in this room knows that the Spirit dwells within you or not. It's not a mystery. People often say, well, that sounds kind of weird. How do people know that? If you're saved today, you know the presence of the Spirit. If the Spirit is not present within you, you are yet an unbeliever today. You say, but I prayed two or three months ago. I prayed. If the Spirit does not dwell within you, you're none of His. The Spirit is the evidence, the seal, the promise of redemption. It is, if you will, the down payment of a future inheritance. It will secure our final and complete salvation. That's what Paul is talking about all the way back in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, when he said, "...in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise." This is all the way back in chapter 1 of Ephesians. "...which is the earnest of our inheritance." until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Paul's not introducing a new thought here in Ephesians 4. He's returning back to what he said all the way back in Ephesians 1. The Spirit is the promise of your inheritance. To grieve the Spirit, therefore, is to wound him who our salvation depends upon. Now, we know the Holy Spirit will never fully withdraw from us. We know that the Spirit doesn't get mad and leave us. You know, there are, there are people that, who claim to be Christians who are, who, are, who are praying for another infilling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There isn't a second one. You don't get second infilling. You don't get indwelt a second time. You don't have to beg God to come back. Say, Spirit, you left me. Come back again. After you believed, you were sealed with the promise. The Holy Spirit took up residence within you. Now the temple of God. He will never leave you, never forsake you. That's part of what that promise means. It doesn't mean that God's just going to, in some nebulous general way, be in the world. No, He's promising He's never going to leave you or forsake you because the Spirit is the very promise in which Jesus said, I go away, but if I go away, I will send you a comforter. That comforter was the Spirit that now dwells within you. The very Holy Spirit Jesus told His disciples was coming is the Spirit that dwells within every believer today. The same Spirit. To disregard His presence is to grieve the Spirit. To speak as if there is no presence of God to act as if there's no present of God 
is a disregard of the manifestations of his presence. In other words, it's to put aside the reality of his indwelling spirit. So secondly, Paul exhorts his readers to put away, as a result of this, here's where it gets even more practical, put, all, put away all malicious and vengeful feelings. These, this, is the, this is the hall of fame of bad behavior. <laughs> Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking. Paul says, be put away from you with all malice. All of these evil things are related. These aren't like standalone. Bitterness is a word that is, is meant to really reflect the entire, uh, the entire direction of your mind. Bitterness also has the idea of something sharp like an arrow. It's something that's bitter to the taste. It disagrees with us. I encourage you this afternoon or at some point, take your Bible out and read Numbers chapter 5 and read about the bitter water, the poisonous water that was given to the woman who was suspected of adultery. Just read it. It's, it's, it's so spiritually enlightening as to the picture of what bitterness actually does. The word bitterness in a very figurative sense means it's something that corrodes. It's like poison to the body. You know, sometimes people jokingly say, I'm just a bitter person. Honestly, that's not really something to joke about. That bitterness is like poison. Bitterness ultimately leads to wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. Most people who struggle with corrupt communications have a sense of bitterness within them. Again, it's like poison. Bitterness has this idea, again, of something that seems harmless, but yet when those bitter words and bitter actions began, begin to be seen and heard, their in, the intended injuries begin to appear. So the command that Paul says here to lay aside this bitterness is a command to lay aside everything that corrodes your mind. Folks, I don't know what you see in a day. I don't know what you read in a day. But I'm telling you, if you're not guarding against the corrosion that is coming to you in the form of a handheld device, and again, I know this isn't popular, but I'm telling you, you're being bombarded with things that are corrupting your mind. And I'm not just talking about pornography and bad language. I'm talking about things that are corroding even your theology and corroding your stance on who God is. I mean, something, some brand new thing comes across a, a Bible truth and somebody comes on the screen and says, you know what, you need to believe this. And people just fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. Say, well, maybe I'm not, maybe I don't know the real thing. Folks, these are corrupting thoughts. They're corroding actions. There's been many a person who has sat right where you are who because of the, the corroding of the mind that has gotten in and has led them completely to, to leave the faith. Bitterness, again, he's not just talking about talking things that are profane words. But this command to lay aside bitterness is to lay aside anything that corrodes your mind or corrodes the mind of someone else. 
wrath makes reference to the, the outpouring of what that bitterness has done. It, wrath has the idea of something that's causing commotion. Clamor and evil speaking are nothing more than the outward expression of anger. The context Paul declaims here is that bitterness and wrath and anger, any form of this kind of speech that would wound or injure someone else should be put away. And I didn't notice this really until this morning. The extra phrase, with all malice. Malice malice is a general term. Um, It's actually a legal term too, that in a a crime, oftentimes if if it's a murder, there's also an added, an added element to this that was this crime committed with malice. It's, it's planned out. It's got this a, a pre, a forethought to it. But malice here in the Scriptures actually has a general, deter, is a general term that also describes depravity. Depravity of any kind. So if my actions and my words are done with the intent to injure. I've done it with malice. And what I'm giving evidence to is I'm giving evidence of my own depravity. And folks, again, there are some times when I stand up here and I tell you and I say just what the Bible says, I'm thinking sometimes through the lens of my own conversations and I'm thinking of my own interactions. And sometimes maybe these don't hit you the way they hit me. But I, again... Just like I told you 10 o'clock, I can think of many, many times, many, many times, even in my life as a believer, where my words and my actions, as bad as this sounds, were done to injure someone else. Most of the times I felt justified. I have a right to injure them because they injured me. Paul was saying all of those types of actions and speech should be put away. So much communication we have today. Again, I don't want to sound like somebody who's, you know, the the world's passed you by. But I'm telling you, most of what you're seeing on social media is of an intent to injure somebody. It really is. And... Yes, I know there's good things spattered here and there, but I want you to understand something. It, it is, it's an absolute cesspool. And, and a lot of times we as believers, we're not seeing it. Again, we should be a light, but understand what your mind, what your mind is actually taking in. Finding, finding a satisfaction in seeing somebody else wound another person. So what does Paul finally exhort in this verse? And we mentioned this last week. Verse 32, Paul exhorts his readers, sounds so simple, to be kind and forgiving. The exhortation is enforced by considering the mercy of God and the great love of Christ towards you. We are required scripturally to be kind. 
Kindness seems so simple. Be kind. Oh, I know, this doesn't, have, this doesn't have the umph behind it like justification does. It doesn't have the umph behind it like depravity and sanctification, effectual calling, predestination, election, reprobation, big, important doctrinal words. Be kind. <laughs> I mean... Teach your children to be kind. Be kind one to another. Be disposed to do good. Tender-hearted. Have you ever actually met a tender-hearted person? They're few and far between, but you know it when you're talking to one. Have you ever met a truly kind person? There's something different about them. And you, you walk away saying, I, I think I was just in the presence of somebody who actually understands what Christian kindness actually looks like. They actually demonstrate it. I think kindness and tenderhearted, in a sense, they go together. Tenderhearted has the same idea that we just read in Colossians 3 when it's expressed by bowels of compassion. It's it's. It's compassion towards others. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted. And here's the one that trips us up as believers. Forgiving one another. The number one reason bitterness is reigning in your heart is because you refuse to forgive somebody for something. I won't call names, but I, I talked to somebody years ago who told me about a, a grudge that they had somebody that was 30 years old. They had been unforgiving towards someone for 30 years. That person, if they were a bitter person too. They weren't speaking, ministering grace. That, that, that lack of forgiveness, just that one alone, will corrupt your communications. It'll corrupt your actions. And I can tell you, based on the context here, that to carry a heart of unforgiveness is to grieve the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit's not, he's not bargaining with you and saying, but you know, you were justified. That person really did you wrong. Listen, everybody in this room has been done wrong by somebody and somebody and been done probably pretty badly. The command is to forgive. The command is simply to forgive one another, even in the sense of other believers. Imagine being two believers who can't forgive each other. That grieves the Spirit. How can two people who've been forgiven by the grace of God refuse to forgive another brother or sister in Christ? The verb forgive actually means, again, similar to ministering grace, it means to give as a matter of favor. Forgiving is to pardon freely. It's not expecting anything back in return. Paul gives the entire motive for not only forgiveness, but being kind, tenderhearted with the very last phrase. And this is really the only reason we need. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's the motive that should constrain you to forgive other people. It's because Christ forgave you. What you and I did, in the truest sense, is unforgivable.
but yet he chose to forgive us. Your sin is unforgivable. If we're left to ourselves, if he doesn't forgive us, we have no remedy for that. We have no, no way of being able to say, well, I can, I can get along without God. No, he, for, he forgave you. That should be the motive for us to forgive others. God's forgiveness towards us was absolutely free. His forgiveness even precedes our own repentance. The fact that he was even willing to forgive before we were even brought to repentance. He forgives us far more than we'll ever be called to forgive others. In other words, when you say, you know how hard it is to forgive this one person? How much he's forgiven you far ways or exceeds any situation you have to forgive. You say, you don't know my situation. I don't, but he wrote it. He's, he's the one. That God's telling us this is what's expected of us. God forgives us in Christ. God himself is the very picture of holiness and justice. He's referred to as a consuming fire, but in Him, He's abundant in mercy and He's ready to forgive. Paul says these are things that grieve the Spirit. I want us to just think about this and then we'll pray and we'll be done. This text really reveals to us this very close connection between the Holy Spirit and the believer. This is not some casual relationship that we have. This is not some, some distant idea the, uh, the 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 principle that the holy spirit of god has such an interest in us that he's grieved by our actions and our words the spirit's not a god who just reigns kind of in this general idea or this isolation but the spirit is so near to us he indwells us Folks, take some time today to meditate on the fact of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Think about what that means to not only be indwelt, but to know that the discernment that we get to understand His Word, the conviction of sin, He freely gives us. Not, not just for no profit at all, but that we would be more conformed into the image of His Son. Paul's instruction, give not any reason to grieve the Holy Spirit. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in prayer. I trust today as the Lord has spoken to us through His Word, that these will not just be concepts and principles that we heard, but that we will desire to live them. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we bring this time of corporate worship to an end, Lord, we know that in reality this is just the beginning. Folks, it is, or, Father, it's easy for us as individuals to sit here and listen and to read and to declare this truth but it's another thing to actually go out and live it. Help us as your people to take what we've heard today and to take it serious. To live with a desire not to grieve the Spirit and not displease the Father. May we live as believers in this 
dark world. Your word promised us that perilous times would come. Perilous times have been and they continue. We are living in those days. We are looking forward to Christ's return. But Lord, until then, may we be found faithful with a desire to live a life that is pleasing unto you. Help our speech to minister grace to the hearers. Lord, may we examine each one of our hearts today and see if there be any sin that's left unconfessed. Father, thank you for this time we've had together. As we leave, I pray now that you will give us guidance in the days ahead. And may we glorify you in every season of life that you guide and direct us into. We love you and we thank you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much. We'll look forward to seeing you Wednesday evening for our midweek worship service. We'll continue our series in the book of Matthew, dealing with the subject of exceeding righteousness. Lord bless you. Thank you.